this morning, I just wanted to give you guys a bit of a peek into what we do in our elder meetings every Monday or every other Monday when we get together. One of the things that we do is we celebrate, we carve out time to celebrate God's graces in our church and in our families. And one of the things that I'm just struck by every time that I get up here and I have the privilege, the opportunity to preach is that God has done a work here and God gets all the credit in this sense. God has done a work here where we so believe that the authority and the power rests in this right here. And uh, we so believe that in a way that it moves us to a position where we're not hemmed in to hearing just one voice. That, that moves us to, to equip and give opportunities to other men and women to uh, both study and preach and teach the word. And I, I just think that's worth celebrating. I'm always just blessed by that. I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord has placed me and my family in a church where that, that's the case. Um, I'm also aware of this, that the verses that we're looking at this morning well, they're probably not unfamiliar to you. Some of us are very familiar with these verses. So I've been praying first and foremost for myself that, man, I wouldn't just brush by these and think, oh yeah, I've heard this, I've read this, I, I understand this, and, and I don't like humbly position myself under the word and say, Holy Spirit, I want to understand what you meant through James. Uh, and I've been praying that for our church as well. Um, so... This morning we're gonna be looking at James chapter two, verses uh, 14 through 26. And James chapter, chapter two, those verses, well, James makes a strong argument that there's two types of faiths. And in fact, those, those two different faiths, well, although there are two, they do have some similarities. And, and James wants us to know what those similarities are so that if we possess some of the qualities of our faith, but not others, we don't want to be fooling ourselves into a, a, a false sense of security. While I was studying these passages, I kept on thinking of the warning signs that we, that we uh, have in our, our culture today. And, and it turns out that these signs, they're actually helpful. They're actually meaningful. Uh, one of the signs that, that I thought about was, you know, uh, uh, if you're heading into oncoming traffic, you know, that, that, that sign is quite necessary, right? And uh, another sign is, is, hey, this is poisonous. Don't eat this. Um, my dog does not pay attention to any of those signs, but, but those signs are necessary, right? Another sign that I thought of while reading this is the warning sign that you see when you're walking up to a roller coaster. You see, in our family, we have uh, two different perspectives when it comes to roller coaster. First, you have our oldest, Stella. Well, she looks at roller coasters like, man, that is an absurd waste of time. Like, uh, what in the world is fun about scaring yourself half to death? Well, then you have Lainey, my middle child, and she's like, yes, please, sign me up right now, make it the biggest, baddest coaster in the park. Um, you see, in a similar way, well, well, that sign that you see when you're walking up to a roller coaster, well, what does it say? It says, hey, measure yourself up against this height requirement. And if you don't, if you, if you choose to just ignore that sign, well, some terrible things could actually happen. Contrary to, to Lainey's like, confidence in her ability to, to conquer any coaster, she'd look at those signs and say, Dad, it's not necessary. It's not necessary, Pop. Nothing's going to happen. But if you're too small, some terrible things could happen. The safety harness won't work, right? 
Well, in a similar way, James, the last half of James chapter two, well, it acts as sort of a warning sign. It's saying, hey, look, you might think that you're okay because you know some true things, that Jesus is real, that he came and he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and he rose again, conquering death. But if your faith stops there, or better put, if your faith does not have fruit, well, then you probably are in real danger. Let's read um, the last half of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'm going to be working in the ESV, um, so please open your Bibles, your devices, and read along with me. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and this is a victory. I, I remembered my glasses this morning. All right. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister in Christ or a brother and sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works Then, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, the person is justified by faith, not by works alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, a prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just praise you and thank you for the fact that we can gather this morning and, and read and, and celebrate the, the graces in our life. Um, the fact that we can trust your word, the fact that we can receive uh, the grace that you intend for us through the body that we're a part of here at Life Church, Lord. This morning, um, would you just uh, calm my nerves? Would you speak through your word? Lord, would you convict us where we need that? Would you encourage us where we need it? Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing in our lives and our church. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So to put my cards on the table, I want to make it clear that there are two options when we're talking about the types of faith that that James is explaining. One option, well, it's a real faith in in a real Jesus, but the problem is it stops at knowing who Jesus is and it disregards grace. And also hear this, it disregards Christ's lordship. 
The second type of faith that James wants to point us to is, is living faith. And while it is infinitely unique from the first, there are some similarities that we need to be aware of. James gives us two examples of folks that, that possess this living faith. It's a faith that acknowledges and, and it delights in God's grace, and also it delights in, in Christ's lordship. I want to be clear that we're talking about two different categories, and when it's all said and done, we can know where we stand. It's, it's one or the other. It's dead faith or it's living faith. This message, friends, it's, it's perfect for the church today because the reality is that much like James talked about a couple weeks ago, well, Christians can be hyper aware of other folks' sin and just blind to our own. We can, we can listen to a sermon or, or maybe it's listening to a podcast and, and, and we can read something and think, oh, yes, oh, so let's say if we're listening to a sermon, oh, man, mm, that's so good, so true. I hope Tommy over there is paying attention or or maybe it's reading scripture even, and, and it's like, oh, yes, amen, Sally. This is for Sally right here. But I want us to consider who the Holy Spirit is talking to through James. It turns out that this isn't an evangelical message in the sense that James isn't saying, hey, here's the gospel, and here's how it works. If you want to be justified, get to work. He's not talking to people that haven't heard the gospel message Look with me at the beginning of the passage at who he's speaking to. James makes it clear that he's speaking to my brothers. This matters. It, it matters because we don't want to stumble into the misconception that this isn't for us. No, indeed, this is for brothers and sisters in Christ to consider. The Bible here is saying, pay attention. We, we don't want you to be confused or fooling yourself. You need to know what dead faith looks like. James wants us to see that there are some attributes, some warning signs for us to consider when we're taking stock of the type of faith that we possess. Our passage highlights three confused or powerless characteristics of faith that we may need to examine ourselves for. The first is empty confession. Let's look at verse 14 again. It says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, the, the context of this verse and what follows indicates the type of faith that James is speaking to here is, is one, a person that's making a claim that they believe in the, the, in the existence of God and also in the Messiahship, in the Lordship of Christ. They also probably believe in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. You see, we can be sure here that what he's speaking of here is an orthodox type of faith. We can see that the workings of our faith, the fruit of our faith, will it matter to James, certainly by the tone of the direction of our verses that follow, also because of what has already been said in James chapter 1. James has already mentioned endurance in chapter 1, verse 3, perseverance under trial in verse 12, purity of life in verse 21, obedience to Scripture in verses 22 through 23. James already touched on compassion for the needy, and he'll speak to it again in the verses that we're looking at to get today. He's not, now, James doesn't give a comprehensive list, list of, of what every possible fruit might look like. He's not saying like, hey, here's the math, math equation 
to justification. Now start checking off your list. It's A through Z. That's not what he does, but he does give us plenty examples of what a righteous life conformed to what God's reveal, revealed word would look like. I want to be clear, friends, that I'm not making an argument that we need to get to work to earn our justification, mostly because I don't think that James is doing this. You see, one way we can get tripped up by this is by thinking that Paul's letters to the Ephesians or other letters, they highlighted grace in such a way that we are to live presuming upon that immeasurable, undeserved grace. We can look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians where it says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And if we stop there, we can think to ourselves, well, that's weird. Paul and James, they, they, they must be at odds. Or, or maybe Paul and James, they're, they're preaching two different gospels. But if we keep reading in, in verse 10, Paul makes it clear that while grace gets all the credit, and hear that, grace does get all the credit. But the salvation that Paul is, is talking about, it always does. And in fact, it must. It must bear fruit. Why? Because that's what Christ, its author, created us for. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, and don't miss this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, to not hold on tight to this reality would be, the, be similar to a person that, that continues to use their, their hammer as a paintbrush, right? It, it turns out that if you, if you use something that it wasn't intended for, you don't change what it was made for. Well, in a similar way, the person that is in Christ, they, have, they were made for something in particular. Friends, where there is true salvation, where, where grace reaches down and, and, and regenerates a person and transforms them from a sinner to a saint, they, there will be new longings. There will be changes. There will be a person denying self. God will create in that person's person longings for for God and his glory fresh fresh desires for for his glory and for loving others and don't misunderstand I'm not talking about a sinless life I'm not talking about perfection it's not though it's not that uh, newborn believers will immediately understand the full implications of the gospel and they should know what they should believe and, and not believe and and do and should not do that's not the case but there will be changes. There will be fruit. No one is saved without becoming a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's so good, right? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this new creation, this Christian, will produce fruit. Fruit like repentance, like submission, obedience, fresh desires to love God and love others. Moving on, the, the second characteristic that we see here in James of a confused or powerless faith is, is false compassion. 
Friends, I just got to be honest with you. It wasn't more than a few weeks ago that, that Michael Fine and I, we stood outside this very building and, and some two, two of these guys walked up to us and they were clearly meeting to, to ask for help. And there's a part of me that certainly just wanted to kind of shoo them on and, and uh, continue this conversation and then just get on with my day. This convicts me. But let's, let's first look at what verses 15 through 17 say. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's a story of, uh, in one of the commentaries that I read while I was preparing for this, and it's a story that I want to share with you guys. It's a story about a European queen uh, several centuries ago. And this queen, well, she went to attend the theater, and um, she left her driver or her coachman outside while she attended this play. The, the theater was beautiful. It was ornate. The drama in this play was, was so, um, was so in- incredible that it left her with tears. She sobbed through most of the performance. And then when, she was, when the play was done, she headed outside. She got up from her seat. She, she headed to her coach. And, and, and as she headed there, she realized something had changed. Something was different. Well, she realized that while she enjoyed this play, her driver had frozen to death. So, so how did she respond? Well, she didn't continue to, to, to weep. In fact, she was actually quite annoyed. She was, she was frustrated at the fact that she now needed to find an alternative means of travel home. And before you find yourself saying, wow, that gal, she's a lot. What this, what this illustrates is that often we can be moved by a fictional tragedy some, or something that we're completely disconnected from. And we can be untouched by the realities of the plight of our, our, our neighbors. Friends, the fact that reality TV is so incredibly popular, the fact that we can become so emotionally involved in a movie or music, it should all give us pause. Reason to, to consider. Consider with me the emotional weight that, that uh, politics and, and social media bear on us. Even social justices that we're disconnected from. I'm not saying that, and James certainly isn't saying that we should be disconnected from those or or not investing in those that are hurting around us and even bringing our Christian worldview into politics and world government or um, local government. But we can often find ourselves glued to the TV, glued to our screens, becoming just incensed at, at the wrongs that we see Yet we show no concern for what's going on in our backyard. Are you more comfortable talking about the latest newsreel that you saw that just angered you? Are you more comfortable talking about that or sharing the gospel with somebody that is in need, in desperate need of, of Christ? Consider with me the parable of the Good Samaritan. Consider how right before Jesus answered the lawyer, the lawyer asked him, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? 
Well, Jesus points the, the man to the law, so the lawyer, well, he shows that he's familiar with the law and quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he adds with all, or, and, and love uh, others as you love yourself, love neighbor as you love yourself. But what the lawyer asks next shows his insufficient on what, uh, grasp on what the law is pointing him to. Yes, okay, Jesus, so, so who's my neighbor? You see, first century Jews, well, they really weren't that different from church folks today. Back then, like today, there was this tendency to be quick to draw clear and distinct lines on who neighbor means. Their tendency was to look to draw lines based on clans or, or religious parties, but the law also required Israelites to treat resident strangers, folks that were just passing through or visiting, they were to treat these folks like fellow Israelites. So Jesus, he gives the lawyer this parable that shatters expectations of, of who might be considered to be the neighbor, also who the hero, so to speak, of this, this parable is. The parable answers the question of who the neighbor is. Well, it's anybody that the Lord puts in your path. There's no one size fits all for how this will look. But one thing that we can be sure of is that it'll probably cost us something. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's an uncomfortable conversation. Maybe it's uh, time, maybe even resources. The reality is that those with saving faith will not be those who merely profess the name of Jesus, but but those whose lives of obedience and service to him prove that their profession was real. The third characteristic of a, a powerless or confused faith, faith is shallow confession. Verses 18 through 20 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There is a very real and sadly common and scary characteristic of dead faith. A recognition of certain facts about God's word without submission to either? Well, James makes it clear that that will not save. James wants the listener to be acutely aware that we share common ground with, with some bad company. He wants this reality to have sort of like a jarring, sobering effect on us. One that gives us pause to take stock of our lives. Jewish orthodoxy always centered on the Shema found in Deuteronomy. The Shema is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The fact is that Jews, Jews' starting point is the same that anyone who is in Christ. But as far as factual doctrine is concerned, even demons are monotheistic. Demons are very much aware the Bible is God's word. 
Demons are very aware that Christ came, he condescended, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. And demons are also aware that right now Christ sits at the right hand of our Father in heaven. You see, what we can be sure of, what we see here is that demons, they're actually quite orthodox. And in a day where that word, orthodox, can, can feel like the high ground that we're seeking, or, or maybe it's the safest place to be, James wants us to know that all of that orthodox knowledge, as eternally necessary as it is, and hear me say this, it is absolutely necessary, but when it's alone, it doesn't save. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 19. Every tree does not bear good fruit. It is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, that's Jesus speaking here. And then James adds, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, foolish has the idea of of empty or defective. And when the Bible uses the term fool or foolish, it's it's not the same way we use it today. Today, that's almost interchangeable with like, hey, that, that fellow's a knucklehead, he's a fool. Um, but, but in this context, foolish has the idea of somebody that, who, who seeks to reject and even suppress truth. It actually has some wretched, sinful connotation here. The type of fool identifies anyone who oppresses truth, that true saving faith produces fruit or righteousness. If we keep both of these verses in view, and we should, we must conclude that neither do we want to be a fool or we certainly don't want to be cast in the fire, right? All of this must point us in the direction of yearning to know, okay, so what's necessary about our, for our faith to be life-changing, to be effective, to be living faith? Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys are thinking that way because that's where we're headed. That's where James is taking us. He's pointing us to what living faith looks like. And in verses 21 through 26, James says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now before we get too far at looking into the examples that James gives here of living faith, I just want to share with you guys that This is probably one of the toughest accounts for me that I have read. I came back to it time and again. And I'm talking about the scripture about Abraham and Isaac ascending Mount Moriah for Isaac's uh, sacrifice. The reality, this this reality, well, it just became uh, challenging for me when I became a father myself. And I'm certainly not saying that you can't understand this uh, without being a parent. That's not the case. 
But to think about God asking so much from Abraham to willing to, be, uh, to sacrifice his son. And try with me for a moment to put yourself in, in Abraham and, and Sarah's shoes. You know, they had waited for years and years, 25 years, in fact, for, for the promised son. And then this God that came through and, and fulfilled that promise, he asks Isaac, or he asked for Isaac's uh, sacrifice. This, was, this is jarring for me to now to, to think about this, and I, and I think it's supposed to be jarring for us. Not only does this foreshadow a promised son that was also prophesied about, a son that was actually sacrificed for our sins, that he was not guilty of, so the, the story of, of Abraham and Isaac, it absolutely foreshadows our heavenly father sacrificing his son, but it shows us also an example of what living faith produces. Friends, let's be clear that, that James wasn't talking about the means by which Abraham was saved, but rather that saving faith was actually present. It's possible for us to get tripped up by verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? But in scripture, the Greek word for justification actually has two different meanings. And this isn't something that the Bible does that we don't do, right? Think about how folks use the word uh, slammed. Like my schedule is just, it's just slammed right now. Or hey, you just slammed my fingers in the car door. Same word, two different meanings. But in scripture, the word for justification can mean acquittal. That is to be declared righteous. Okay, that, that's what we can think that is being said here. We see this in Romans dealing with the very same subject in, in chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says, justified as a gift by grace through, ga- th- uh, by grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The second meaning of diako, you see my very unsmooth attempt at Greek there? Um, the, the Greek word for uh, justify pertains to, to vindication or, or proof of righteousness. In this way, we, we see it used a number of times in the New Testament. We see a, a clear example of this in the Gospel of, of Luke, where Jesus is speaking to a judgmental crowd that sought to condemn him. Well, Jesus says... Wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, you see, what Jesus is not saying here is that a good parent is only a good parent when his kids listen and turn out to be perfect. We, we can say, thank goodness for that, right? Um, that's, the, that's not what he's saying. Um, a better way to put this is when you tell your kids something is true, well, the fact that they accept that as truth doesn't make it true. Truth stands re- uh, true regardless of how, he, uh, how we respond to it. I'll say that again. Truth stands true regardless how we respond to it. But if and when our children listen to wisdom and they are blessed because of it, well, then that wisdom is, is justified or it's, it's vindicated. You see, it's this second sense with which James is using in chapter 2, verse 21. 
He explains that Abraham's supreme demonstration of justification occurred when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, which we know it happened many years after his justification by faith, which was recorded in Genesis 15.6. Now, it's worth noting that just like the other example given to us in Rahab, that Abraham, well, he wasn't a perfect man. His faith wasn't perfect. All of his works weren't perfect. We have a clear record of this. In fact, after many years had passed without Sarah having the promised son, well, Abraham, he took matters into his own hands, and he had a son by, with someone other than his wife. His wavering trust in the Lord led him to commit adultery. But in, in both the example of Abraham and, and Rahab, we see that James is making, the point that he's making is in the overall pattern that, that their life communicated, their faith was vindicated or justified by radical obedience. Just as one theologian wrote, faith alone justifies, but that justifying faith is never alone. You see, Abraham and Rahab's justification by works was not demonstrated by their profession of faith. They didn't make some life rad uh, radical changing life commitment at a Christian summer camp. It wasn't because they sang all the latest K-Love songs or because they avoided those songs in favor of the old way hymns. It wasn't because they attended the, the best revival or walked down the sawdust trail. It wasn't because of any ritual or religious activity. In both cases, it was demonstrated by putting everything on the line without qualification, without reservation. They were supremely committed to the Lord, whatever the cost would be. Reading about this type of faith in the Bible, it should cause something and it should, should stir us up. It should wake us up. Friends, it's a, a sobering reality that all who profess faith in Christ will not be saved. Look at math, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Life Church, I hope that this doesn't add up to another Sunday morning where you've sat under some guy uh, preaching or a message preaching that... Um, you should feel guilty about not doing enough. This isn't a sermon or a passage telling us to get to work to be better people. What it is, is it's a warning sign. And just like the warning sign that you see when you're walking up to the roller coaster that says, hey, you need to measure yourself up against the height requirement. The Bible here is saying, hey, measure your faith up to what the word of God says is living faith. To, to ignore this 
could have eternally uh, devastating consequences. Just like, this is just like what, uh, sort of like what Pastor James said a couple weeks ago when he contrasted wisdom and knowledge. Are we simply accruing information or are we becoming Christ-like? Living faith produces God-glorifying works of righteousness that vindicate our faith. And if you sit here and you say, that's just not me. That's just not me. Well, the weight of this message and the passage James is communicating is not one of shame, but invitation. How should you respond? Ask the Lord to produce in you new desires for Him and His glory. You won't do this just the once. In fact, we will all do this over and over and over again. As He strips away layers of sin and He prepares us, He prepares us for what He has made you for. Once again, please don't misunderstand this passage. This isn't a message meant to heap on any kind of guilt. This could be the very means by which God is calling you to him. So if that's you, listen. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, taking that connection card, filling it out, and asking for an opportunity to speak with one of the pastors or one of the elders, one of the staff members. Um, we can reach out to you later on during the week if it's too intimidating to do that here. Listen. I'll end with a verse uh, that I've touched on almost every time that I've had the privilege, the honor, and the opportunity to be up here and preach. And, and before, it's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. I've stopped at, at 9, verse 9 before, but I'll include verse 10 because it's just so perfect, so appropriate this morning. It says, for, I, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Love you, Life Church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for uh, your word and the clarity of it. Uh, we thank you for the fact that our justification does not depend on anything that we can accomplish, but on what you have already accomplished. So God, I pray that um, we would... We would fall under your word. We would, we would take it seriously this morning. Maybe it's, it's asking ourselves, hey, is, is this me? Um, we could certainly all say that we want to pursue you and your glory uh, to a greater extent, more faithfully. Uh, so would you help us do that, Lord? We ask all this in your son's perfect name. Amen.